0: When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat
1: may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America N.A. Member FDIC. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to showstop flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 percent with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Hello and welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern.
0: And with me, Robert Peston. How are you, Steph?
1: I'm good, yeah. we're. Just, it's kind of back to school for all of us, isn't it, this week? I'm just back doing my show, which is really fun. You're back, aren't you, as well, in Westminster? Yeah,
0: back in Westminster doing my political editor stuff for ITV, preparing for the... Uh, New season of my um, interview show, which will start not tonight, but next Wednesday. So, yeah, busy, busy, busy.
1: Are you like me? Do you get new stationery when you start a new new year?
0: <laughs> Do you know, I haven't invested in new kit. I probably need a new pair of trainers. I'd, I'd like to start a season with a new pair of trainers. But I've, I've, <laughs> I
1: have yeah,
0: I, 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 I haven't. I haven't bought them yet. Uh, anyway, we've got an action-packed show, haven't you? Do you want to tell tell the world what we're going to be talking about?
1: Yeah, I mean, we had... Thank you, by the way, to everyone who listened to our first episode of the show. I think we were... Both a bit nervous, weren't we, Robert, that no one would listen. It would just be like our families and that's about it. So <laughs> thank you for everyone who's listened to us. And obviously, we talked about air traffic control and it, it's come out today, hasn't it? We're one in, what is it, 15 million chance of that happening?
0: Well, I think I think it made our conversation particularly apt in the sense that, you know, the thrust of what we were trying to say last week is, you know, if, if a disaster is remote... It's still likely to happen. I have to say, I, th- I regard that one in 15 million probability as one of the most nonsense calculations I've heard in a long time. There is plainly something very wrong with the air traffic control computer system, not in a safety sense, just in a sort of, you know, the notion that a bit of wrong sort of coding on an airplane. Could bring the whole system down.
1: Nuts. Mm, I know it's scary, isn't it? And I'm sure it's something we'll come back to talk about again. Uh, so what we're we talking about on this show, I know I'm really interested in talking about all the the business side of the Wagovi. Uh, this is, of course, this weight loss jab that's being now launched this week on the NHS. And there's so many business ramifications to this. So I fancy a bit of a chat about that. You know, Robert, I'm obsessed with. How we pay for things and buy now, pay later is another big topic for me that I want to talk about. Lots of young people use this. Well, lots of people generally use it, but particularly, uh, you know, the concerns about the difficulties people can get into with this. What have you got up your sleeve?
0: Obviously, like pretty much the whole nation, uh, I've been despairing about the number of schools that have been shut down because the building material, the aerated concrete, is not fit for purpose. I want to talk about that in the context, you know, the fact that we have not, Successive governments have not, to use George Osborne's phrase, been fixing the roof while the sun was shining. We haven't been investing enough for many, many, many years. And it's not just schools that are at risk. Much of the rest of the fabric of the UK is not as robust as it should be. Then I also want to talk a little bit about sort of two economic subjects. One, whether um, inflation is falling as fast as we would like, and if not, why not? And a related issue, is the economy actually in better health than we thought? There were some new figures from the Office of National Statistics, which showed that after the COVID debacle, the economy was a bit bigger than the Office of National Statistics originally told us. We'll both look at what that means.
1: Right, so let's start with this uh, miracle, as some people are calling it, weight loss jab. There's loads of business in this story because, you know, we're talking about huge pharmaceutical companies who make these weight loss drugs. You know, there's the impact, of course, on the NHS in terms of finances and the obesity problem, and then what it means for the economy as well in terms of the nation's health and getting people back into work. So just to give you a summary on it, what we're talking about here is a drug called semaglutide uh, made owned by Nova Nordisk, which is a Danish pharmaceutical company. And they market it in two ways. They've got Wigovi, which they market for weight loss. That's the one that's just been launched this week in the UK uh, on the NHS. And then a which has been around for a good while now, and that's for diabetes. The difference between them is the dose of the semaglutide in it. And basically it's an injection. It acts like a hormone in the brain and it causes people to feel less hungry and it slows down uh, stomach clearing as well. So, yeah, we're going to be launched this week on the NHS. And in that time, we saw the share price of Nova Nordisk rocket. Look at their market capitalization on this, which is well over $400 billion now.
0: You know, it's the 15th biggest company in the world by market value. Its market value, astonishingly, is greater than the national income, the GDP of its home country. Denmark. You know, economists in Denmark are, uh, are saying that Novo Nordisk on its own. I mean, they've got some other drug companies, but Novo Nordisk is pretty much on its own, um, its growth is driving national income up in the whole economy. That that actually, I mean, there was one I saw one bit of research which said if it hadn't been for the success of of Novo Nordisk, the Danish economy would be flatlining. So it's—I mean, so so it is really astonishing uh, yeah. the the success of this business. Um, I mean, one of the things that I'm sort of very struck by. It's, it's, I think it's celebrating its 100th anniversary. One of the world's biggest, I think it is the world's biggest producer of insulin. It's been producing it since 1923. So it's been in the business of helping people with diabetes since its start. And this is a company that's basically done incredibly well by sticking to its knitting, by sticking to the stuff that it knows. And this semaglutide uh, you know, formulation is a sort of natural extension of the stuff it's been doing for 100 years. And it's a bit of a lesson for all of us about the importance of, You know, sticking to what you know and taking a long term view.
1: And just in terms of why this is so valuable and why. Everyone's so excited about it. You know, you and I know obesity costs the NHS a lot of money every year, something like six and a half billion pounds every year in dealing with obesity-related uh, diseases and conditions and, and problems. And that is just expected to rock it up to nearly 10 billion uh, a year by 2050. Uh, if you look at the stats on, you know, our population's weight, around a quarter of the population is obese And you know, there's quite a lot of people, it's around something like. Another 40% of people are overweight. I'm in that category as well, unfortunately. But, you know, no, you the thing know. is, I think lots of people are like, I am, I've got BMI over 25, so I fall into the overweight category. I think loads of people don't realise they do. Anyway. <laughs> okay,
0: I'm starting I mean, Let's just it.
1: I know, that's what I mean, you know. Anyway, interesting thing about this, and the, coming back to why it's so valuable. So the, the clinical trials that Northern Nordists have done have shown that you can reduce weight or bring the weight loss could be 15% if you do this with a reduced calorie and exercise. So guidance around if you help people to bring down their calories as well and you exercise, weight loss uh, can be in the region of 15%. It also reduces the risk of heart attacks and strokes by 20% as well. And there's also from these clinical trials, they've seen evidence of reduced blood pressure and inflammation, all of which is key to chronic disease, isn't it? So talking to one of my mates who's a doctor about this, he he was saying the key for them is about the implementation. So if it is implemented, this drug, in the same way it has been used in clinical trials, so combining it with nutrition support and guided physical activity, then it could be a massive game changer because this kind of weight loss in the UK population would have huge financial implications because of the burden of obesity-related disease Being really rife. So, the sense that this could make a huge difference is massive if it's used in the right way. But the problem with it is that in private practice, you don't necessarily have it with this um, exercise and guided nutrition stuff. You don't even have to do face to face appointments to get it privately. Um, You know, I I know uh, a doctor was telling me that someone had sent in a picture of a celebrity, a fat celebrity in order to get the drug and they got it off the back of it. So there's that kind of misuse of it. And what we've seen so far is with a Zempic is there's a lot of NHS patients who were on uh, semiglutide. So of course that's a, that's a Zempic and Rolgove, includes both of them, for diabetes have had to stop because of its explosion as a weight loss drug. So there are already supply issues and potential misuse.
0: There's certainly a worldwide shortage of the drug. I mean, one of the things that people are worried about about the NHS approach is at the moment they're saying you can have it for two years, but there's a fair amount of evidence that actually, if you come off it, you put weight back on again. And so the notion that you know it should be time-limited is, I think for some medical experts a bit of an issue. I mean, your, your point about it having to be combined with lifestyle changes is plainly important. I don't know if you remember our former Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, his very first, very highly paid column for the Daily Mail was about how he'd used his MPIC. And in the end, he got bored, gave up and put the weight back on again. And, you know, I think he's not untypical. But that said, plainly, and there's so much evidence now of this, that deployed... In a sensible way, the benefits are, you know, can be huge. You know, we are in the West and indeed in countries that are getting richer. You know, we are victims of our own success in the sense that people are eating too much, they're eating the wrong foods. We used to regard this as a purely lifestyle thing. One of the things I think is really interesting about semaglutide is the extent to which it changes our view about what obesity really is. And I think when you have a formulation that massively changes how people behave, stops them feeling hungry, you suddenly realise you know, that it isn't a lifestyle choice to be fat, this is a medical condition. And, I, you know, and, and, and one would sort of hope that in time people will understand that people, particularly people who are very unhealthily obese will now, you know, a lot of these people I think feel victimised and and people don't sympathise with them. And I think it's very important to recognise that, you know, these are people who, you know, do need support. And, you know, one sort of hopes that one becomes a slightly more tolerant society.
1: If you look at the statistics on this in terms of where you will find the biggest obesity and uh, weight related problems, it is in deprived areas. So, you know, you're 14% more likely to be obese in a deprived area which you know says a lot about the fact that it, it's it is for lots of people something that they have no control over because of the way that they you know live their life and the fact that they are in poverty and the fact that it is more expensive to buy fresh ingredients and it also means you need a lot more time to make things that are healthier and aren't ultra processed and there's two other things on this that I want to talk about you know if we're, if we're seeing this as a potential way to to help solve a future health crisis. Why is it then that the insurers are not up for paying for people to be on semaglutide? Because they're not, are they? They are suspicious?
0: First of all, it's going to be very expensive. I mean, this is is an American issue. Um, You know, the the biggest market for any healthcare product is America. At the moment, US insurers on the whole are not paying for people to have semaglutide. People have to pay an enormous amount of money personally. And that means a lot of poor people can't afford it. And it's partly because over there, they still see obesity as something of of a lifestyle choice. Now, I think attitudes are changing. It'll be interesting to see how fast they change. I mean, I think the other thing, which is really interesting, although Nova Nordisk, is in the lead in this area. There's a huge US company, actually a bigger US company, Eli Lilly, which is also quite close to getting approval for uh, a competitor product. I think the other thing which is really interesting to me about semaglutide, I mean, obviously we've talked about how Novo Nordisk's share price has gone through the roof. It is double the size of Britain's biggest company, which is AstraZeneca, wow. right? yeah. another drugs company. But the other thing is I was talking to you know one of the sort of bigger investors in uh, Novo Nordisk and He says, which is interesting. So it's on a massive. It's called called a massive rating. It's it's market cap of more than four hundred billion. That's forty-four times its earnings, and that that means that investors think it's very valuable. But the interesting thing, which I didn't realize, is this is not proven, by the way. But there, there, there is some evidence that semaglutide proves effective as an anti-inflammatory. So it could help with arthritis, lupus, and those sorts of conditions. Uh, and we've talked about the cardiovascular benefits because it's not just mm. obesity. The other thing, which actually we hadn't mentioned, is that that the, this drug is proven to reduce the risk of heart disease, right? Which is one of the reasons it's being prescribed. The other thing, which I thought was really interesting, which I've not heard a, a, until talking to this investor, but there is talk that it may be effective against dementia in some circumstances. You, you can see you know, why investors are so excited
1: yeah you can see right uh, they're excited because this weight loss drugs market is expected to reach 140 billion dollars isn't it in terms of value um but the, you mentioned about lily there the big us um pharmaceutical company and the fact that they're not far behind with their own weight loss drugs and when i was chatting to my mate who's a doctor about this he was saying we're govy is is old news as far as he's concerned he's a doctor who's um really focused on chronic illness and obesity and weight loss and things and and he was saying to me, they're just waiting for the clinical trials to finish of the, the Lily one. And, it, and it's two drugs in particular. One is uh, Tazepatide, which is a 20% weight loss from clinical trials. So that's already 5% more than the Wagovi one. And then another one, which is called retirutide, which is a 24% weight loss. So these are both drugs which are due to finish their clinical trials at the end of the year, which. My mate, Dr. Hussein was saying to me, will blow Wigovi out of the market. But the issue will be that often what you get with, with doctors is that in medicine, doctors will often prescribe what they get used to rather than what is the most effective option.
0: In business, as in medicine, a bird in the hand is definitely worth two in the bush. And the, and the point about Wigovie and Zempic is they're on the market and Eli Lila's are not.
1: Yeah. I should add, by the way, you know, I mentioned earlier about um, somebody sent in a picture of a fat celebrity to try and get themselves uh, onto the whole Wigowski thing. It, it wasn't a picture of me. <laughs>
0: I've told you, you're not (laughs) obese or fat or
1: overweight.
0: (laughs) I think I need to have a word with your doctor.
1: Anyway, right. Should we move on? Do you want to kick us off?
0: Yeah, let's do that. And, you know, uh, I really want to talk about the wider implications of the fact that more than 100 schools can't operate properly because, amazingly, very late in the summer holidays, the government discovered that this material rack aerated concrete that was installed in all sorts of buildings in the 40s, 50s, 60s, um, is dangerous, but it's crumbling unless they remove it or take other remedial action in schools. You know, kids' lives are going to be put in danger. I mean, there's all sorts of issues around why uh, the government couldn't warn schools earlier in the summer, you know, but, but the bigger issues for me are what this tells us about years and years and years of underinvestment in infrastructure in the UK i do also want to draw an analogy because i think this is important with the collapse of birmingham city council the fact that it is effectively you know declared itself bankrupt and it has done that for two reasons this is very similar to the schools issue it's got a big problem from the past, which is it frankly wasn't paying women fairly. And it's got to correct that. It's got a, an equal pay claim and it's got to rectify the fact it didn't pay women fairly for decades in the past, just as we didn't invest enough in schools in the past and in you know hospitals and the rest. Um, and then combine this legacy of the past with a government that from 2010 engaged in austerity and massively cut back um, both allocations to councils and indeed investment. And the combination of austerity and legacy problems leads you to the kind of collapse we've seen in the education system, and indeed of, a, of, a, of you know, one of the biggest municipalities in the entire world, Birmingham.
1: It's quite incredible, really, isn't it, that we, we can be at a point where you can see a huge council like that collapse. And also, we once again are in a situation where children are not able... To go to school to learn, of course. During the pandemic, everyone, you know, could get their head around that, understand that. This is just so hard for parents to understand. So I've got a friend who's got children in one of those schools, which is now facing, you know, the, this issue with the concrete. The daughter who's in year seven, so just going into big school, um, you know, is only eleven, already feeling a bit worried about it. Is only able to go in for two days a week; the rest is kind of homeschool online stuff. And then their elder son, who's in year nine, so 13, just coming up to that pivotal GCSE uh, moment where he's going to pick his options and all that jazz. He's been told it's all going to be online again for the foreseeable. And, and he's already been hit two years earlier by the pandemic. So you just wonder what impact this is going to have on not just, you know, education in the sense of that academic learning at school, but mental health young people's confidence and all of that.
0: I do think we need to sort of also just think about the sort of broader issue of a country that people think is just not working properly. I don't know if you saw this, but over the weekend, Lord Ashcroft, uh, you know, very senior Tory peer, he basically spends his life doing opinion polls now, and he published a poll over... The weekend, which showed that three-quarters of British people, or just under three-quarters, and that's the majority of both Tory and Labour supporters, basically take the view Britain isn't working, and that's partly because their living standards are under pressure, and it's also because the public services that we rely on aren't delivering the services that mm. we expect. Um, you know, schools are just one manifestation of this. Part of the explanation, it's not just austerity. Over decades we have invested less than other countries. UK public investment since 2000 or so has averaged 2.5% of our national income every year. You know, that is many tens of billions, but it is significantly less, about a third less than the average for rich countries, what are known as the OECD advanced economies. And actually, even though, The biggest cut in public investment was made by George Osborne after 2010. And then we had a Prime Minister in Boris Johnson who said that was all a mistake and he's going to rectify that. Immediately after Liz Truss's mini budget, when Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak said, Well, you know, we've got to restore the health of the nation's finances. And they announced a series of cuts. At that point, Jeremy Hunt froze. In cash terms, public investment. And when you freeze spending levels in cash terms at a time of high inflation, inflation 9, 10%, that is a massive real terms cut. And it means that over the next two or three years, our investment, at a time when we are desperately need it, just look at what's happening to schools, mm. you know, at t- our public investment is gonna fall even further from 2.5% of GDP to about 2.2%. Of GDP, and we're going to fall even further below the kind of amounts they spend in France and Germany.
1: I know it's embarrassing, isn't it? I mean, you could pretty much list everything we use in terms of infrastructure, and there's nothing that stands out as being brilliant, you know, whether it is traveling around on the trains or, like you say, the school buildings or other public buildings. It's embarrassing. Coming back to education then and, and what's happened with schools. So like the government arguing they, they, that they have increased the, the budget for the education department. It's gone up to something like £87 billion pounds a year, and it was about £72 billion when when Labour were in power. But the problem is, just putting real terms and all that aside, just in terms of where that money's gone though, all of that increase has gone into the resource budget for education, which is the day-to-day running. It's the 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 you know where the money for the staff and everything else comes from. So this capital budget, the budget, which is for maintenance and for things like the upkeep of the buildings, for computer hardware and all that kind of thing, has been cut by two point two billion pounds a year. And when I talked to head teachers about this, um, one of my friends who runs a school up in Newcastle, in, in the west end of Newcastle, in an area where there's a lot of deprivation and things, she gets a, an allowance from the local authority for um, for the capital spend. But it is never enough for what they need because they've constantly got problems with old boilers and problems with electrics and problems with various building things. So they always end up dipping into the resource budget, which inevitably is staff pay. Which means cutting back on teaching assistance. It means cutting back on on, you know, things that will enhance kids' education. Because what they're told as a school is you should have already planned for the boiler breaking down in where however many years' time. That should have already been accounted for. And it isn't working. So there isn't the money there for these buildings. And and if you look, there was a National Audit Office report on what are the worries in terms of Um, fixing schools and maintenance and actually the concrete didn't even come into it at this point it was asbestos, electrical wiring, heating, ventilation, they were the biggest concerns around school buildings and you're seeing it all the time with, with schools each having their own issues. I was talking to a school governor yesterday on my show who was saying they've got a problem with a, a lightning rod that they need and it's going to cost 10 grand and they haven't got the money for it. So they're trying to work out whether they can reduce a teaching assistant and all of this. It's There's just so much more than just this concrete and the budget's just not working for schools.
0: I do want to return to this issue of the wider damage of underinvestment. So we had, after the financial crash, indeed also after Brexit, big reductions in both private investment and talked already about austerity in George Osborne, David Cameron's cuts, big investment cuts after 2010. The Resolution Foundation has calculated that weaker investment has contributed nine percentage points of the roughly 20% fall in national income per head GDP. Per head since the financial crisis. So it's not just the chickens coming home to roost now, in terms of, I mean, we don't yet know what the scale of the problem will be in the NHS from having to remove this aerated concrete. You know, that's going to be another burden. But it is just that as a nation, as a result of underinvesting, we are massively poorer than. We would have been if we had kept, in, you know, investment up. And the thing that one would want to say here is, it's easy to cut investment when, or easier to cut investment when the going gets tough, because if people aren't expecting a new hospital or a new school, and then it doesn't get built, they don't complain in the way that they would complain if you have to sack teachers, or if you cut their benefits, or if you reduce the number of your nurses. So if you are a chancellor like George Osborne in 2010, the reason you cut capital spending is because the political backlash from punters, from us, is less, but it's really short-termist because it means that the productive potential of the economy is reduced, the national income grows more slowly, tax revenues, therefore, are also less than they would otherwise be. And therefore, there's actually even less money for the state to spend. And, and that's why we have to get a culture now of sustaining investment and recognizing that if we want to have a prosperous future, it is the perhaps the most important element of government spending
1: fundamental to all of that is government's thinking in the long term rather than the short term for elections.
0: And, and, and I suspect this is going to be a recurring theme for the two of us over the next few weeks.
1: Yeah, I suspect it will. So should we have a little break?
0: Why not? Welcome back to the rest is money with me, Robert Peston.
1: and me, Steph McGovern.
0: Now, um, you are somebody who's been obsessed for years and years and years about people taking on excessive debt, about companies that persuade us all to borrow, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about buy now, pay later. Talk me through why this matters.
1: I often end up, um, particularly, you know, given where I'm from from Middlesbrough, see the harsher side of debt and the problems it can cause for people. So one of the things I've been keeping an eye on, as you say, is, is the whole buy now, pay later system. And demand for buy now, pay later is, is through the roof, fueled by the cost of living crisis. And there's been some research out recently saying that a fifth of people now are using buy now, pay later to buy essentials. So let me explain what it is. So this is, it is an on the spot, interest free, short term loan. Uh, so it normally works with you'll you know you'll see something online, you'll go to buy it, and then it'll give you the option of this short term loan, and it's normally um, a set number of repayments or a set term in which you pay it back. The key being there is no interest on it. Unless, of course, you don't meet the terms, you don't do the the payback in those installments. And it's very attractive to people because they don't do hard credit checks. So it's not something that's going to impact your credit score either in many cases. Now, we started seeing it being used uh, around 2016 is when it first came into the kind of UK market. And it was very much used by retailers in the beauty and fashion uh, arena um but now you see it everywhere so you can even use buy now pay later to get your takeaway online and last year there were more than 17 million people who used buy now pay later which had doubled compared to the previous year compared to 2021 and you'll know it you'll have seen it whenever you even if you've never used it you'll have seen the big names it's Klarna Clearpay Buy, Afterpay my worry about it is yes, it's a great way for people to be able to afford things if it's used properly. The problem is when people get into difficulties.
0: So Steph, I know you're, you've been completely immersed in this industry and and you've got some firsthand stories, uh, haven't you, about the human cost of when people use these services too much?
1: Yeah. A good case study of someone I'll tell you about who kind of sums up the problems with it. So It's a girl called Hannah, who I I recently interviewed, who was buying makeup. And so she was buying makeup online. She was going to pay full price for it. Then she saw this offer for buy now, pay later. And she thought, oh, that's quite good. It'll spread it out a bit. That'll give me a bit more money for the weekend to go out with my mates and all of that. So she ended up signing up for it. The next day she was buying some jeans and then it popped up straight away again. And she was like, oh yeah, this is good. Now, before she knew it, she was spending beyond her means. She said it didn't feel like real money to her. She was spending more impulsively. She wasn't thinking about it coming out of her account. She was just thinking, oh, it's next month. That'll be fine. There was all these ads popping up every time she was buying. Then she started to miss the repayments. And then her debt was passed on to a debt collection agency. So the big issue here is people don't see it as debt or don't realize that they're taking on debt. It encourages impulse buy-in. It's something like a third of people spend more than they planned when they use Buy Now, Pay Later. You're bombarded at the checkout. Sometimes it looks like the only option to pay, and you can often be incentivized to use it as well. So they'll say, use Buy Now, Pay Later, and we'll give you free delivery. So you can instantly see, Robert, why this can then lead people into a path of taking on too much debt.
0: No, I can. And, and I think one of the things that's striking is that the government and the Financial Conduct Authority were, I mean, actually the Financial Conduct Authority still is, but the government was saying that it's pretty concerned about people, in effect, getting into excess debts as a result of using buy now, pay later. And they were planning to force these companies to register as credit providers with a financial conduct authority, and and the point of doing that, as I understand it, is when you are a registered credit provider, there is then a responsibility on you to check that when somebody takes out a deal like this, effectively a loan, that they can afford it. Um, that there are, you know, and th- the thing at the moment is there are no affordability checks when a klarna or a layby or any of the others you know offer you a deal of of this sort. Um I mean one of the things that the critics of these companies say is that they're exploiting a regulatory loophole. They don't as you say charge interest. Anybody who charges interest straightforwardly is obviously uh, providing a loan and they're regulated. These companies However, if you miss the payments, they whack you with massive fines. And because fines are not classified as interest, they escape regulation. Obviously, Klarna would would argue that the majority of its income comes from the fees that it receives from retailers. The business model here is that retailers want to encourage sales. And therefore, uh, you know, in the way that they'll pay a credit card company to accept our credit cards, uh, they will pay Klarna to provide this service.
1: The thing as well, I would say is I think there's always like a bit of snobbery around um, debt and how people spend their money. What do you mean by that? You know, I remember, you know, working when I first was working at the BBC. And do you remember the Fairpack scandal?
0: Incredibly sad story about people who couldn't afford to buy stuff for Christmas and they had these an instalment payment plan you saved you saved through the year told you a lot about inequalities in the country the fact that a business like Fairpack exists at all
1: well I know but Fairpack was a really like you've just said it like it was a really like negative thing but actually Fairpack I
0: didn't say it was a negative thing I thought it was an indictment of inequalities in the country no hang on let me
1: finish let me finish my point Fairpack was a way communities could save for Christmas in a really positive way it was like you put your money away by the end you got this amazing hamper the problem was when the company went bust and then loads of people lost all their, you know, their hampers. My issue with it was when I remember when I was first talking about this as a story, because, you know, I had family members who paid into these things and friends, it it was so much of a kind of working class story. I remember, and I won't say which program it was, them saying to me, no, people don't put money into things where they don't get interest on them. And I'm like, yes, they do. There was just this sense of, oh my God, what are they thinking? These people putting in money and not getting interest on it. And it's like, no, you're missing the point of how people see money and see, you know, like higher purchase. I've heard a lot of commentators talk about how it's terrible people use higher purchase. That's how people buy things and they there's no stigma around it. Nobody
0: should argue that people on lower incomes shouldn't have good stuff. That's not the point one's making. I mean, the point that one's making simply is that we don't yet fully know the social cost of people essentially accumulating unsustainable debts. And it seems to me there is a very good case, not for banning these businesses, but for simply forcing on them the normal practice of saying you have a responsibility to make sure that people can afford these debts. Government came up with a proposal to regulate. They have, however, it's been a lot of time now passed. We haven't got the regulations. There's Quite a lot of talk that the government is backing off, actually imposing these regulations because they're worried that the Klanas of this world will pull out of the UK, and they're worried that in some way, way this will be bad for the UK. I'm not 100 clear. I can see it might be bad for Klana to leave the UK, since we're plainly, you know, uh, you know, a big consumer market. I can't remotely see why. It would be bad for the UK if a business said, "If I can't, if I'm forced to behave decently, uh, I'm going to leave." So you're set. You're with Clara, You think no, there shouldn't well, <laughs> be regulation?
1: <laughs> no, no, no. My point is is that the regulation and the affordability checks it might mean that some people who use this as a way to to live and they use it well don't get credit. You know, if you and so therefore. If, I mentioned right at the beginning about a fifth of people are using it to buy essentials. There'll be a lot of them who are people who might not get traditional loans, uh, you know, get traditional help with debt, who might end up then not being able to afford stuff. But this is
0: a much broader issue about the availability of reasonably priced credit for people on, on, on low incomes. And I think there is a big issue here that, that in the provision of banking services and the provision of credit, there is desperate inequality. And one of the things that is, I'm afraid a feature of pretty much all rich Western nations, but is also something that is really unfair, is that the richer you are, the better the deals you get when you borrow money. And if you're at the bottom of the spectrum, you you don't have access to reasonably priced credit. I think successive governments have been hopeless in addressing this. But, But simply making that broader point about how unfair the banking market is for p- for poorer people is not the same thing as saying that one should not regulate businesses like Klarna.
1: Yeah, I'm not saying don't regulate. Of course I'm not saying that. I'm just saying of course there needs to be more transparency because one in 10 people are used by now Pilate to end up facing debt collectors. Of course that shouldn't happen, but what I'm saying is there is that issue around the affordability check.
0: No no of course it is. Well, I personally think as so long as it's done in a sensitive way, you know, buy now pay later will survive but 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 the social costs will be will be less. I mean I do want to point out one thing because Klarna has been within Europe an astonishing sort of up and down story, you know, financial technology, the so-called fintech industry has been, you know, one over the last sort of 10 years or so one of the boom industries. There was a period when Klarna, believe it or not, at a market value of $46 billion, right? It's um, privately owned. It's now worth $7 billion. Its value has massively fallen. There is talk that at some point it will have a listing, but it has been actually unprofitable for years and years. It had one month. This year it's had one month of profit, but for years it's been unprofitable. Now, the reason for that, it's a very ambitious company, is that it's been expanding in the US, and it's been very expensive for it to expect to expand in the US. Actually, recently bumped into uh, an executive that works actually at its head office in Sweden, and she was telling me <laughs> that. Um, She's slightly embarrassed to admit the company she works for when she goes to parties. Um, she just says she works for a bank because she knows if she <laughs> says uh, for that she works for Klarna, there's always a sort of sharp intake of breath. But one of the things that I've been thinking about is what is it that Klarna does that is so unique, or any of these businesses that does. It? So I mean, I can't understand why it had a 46 billion uh, market cap because it seems to me businesses like this can easily be replicated. Um, I'm slightly amazed that some other sort of banks don't do this kind of business.
1: That's what's happening now. It isn't just this third party companies doing it. So now, for example, Apple have brought out their version of it. So Apple pay later.
0: If this is just going to be a new way of, of paying for stuff, A, there are going to be lots of providers and B, they should all be regulated.
1: Yeah. And so that's the argument. Sorry, just to add to that, that is one of the arguments from the third party lot is if regulation comes in the way it is, um, you know, because there's been this draft legislation concluded in April and, you know, we're expecting at some point to hear what is genuinely going to happen, what's going to be not just draft but official legislation. And one of the big issues that these third party companies have is it's only going to cover third party and not retailers and merchants who have their own.
0: Obviously, anybody in this game has to be regulated. And I think, I think. Oh,
1: yes, of course it needs to be regulated. But my, uh, of course it does. I've been banging on and talking about this on my show for, you know, every few months, talking about there needs to be regulation with buy now, pay later. Because as I say, I am like talking to the people who've been hit by these debt collection agencies. But my point is, you can't just do heavy handed regulation and not think about what it leaves behind, which are the people who cannot get traditional. Debt that will actually help them to survive through, you know, what is the toughest time for lots of people. Anyway, should we bring a bit of uh, potential positivity uh, to the podcast for this final final chat? Because we had um, some statistics out, didn't we, from the Office for National Statistics? Who obviously look at what's going on in the economy all the time, and it looks like things have been a little bit better in terms of how the economy has been doing since we've come out of the pandemic than previously thought. What are your thoughts on it?
0: Okay, so this was quite a big story the other day. The Office of National Statistics uh, said that the recovery from the uh, COVID slump was faster uh, than it had originally thought. The first thing I should say, it's been attacked for making a big mistake. Actually, I don't think it's fair to describe this as a mistake. National income figures are continually revised you know, the Office of National Statistics is still revising our views of the 1980s and 1990s, believe it or not. And what you get with these statistics is the first take. um, And then they go back and they see whether the assumptions they made at the time were correct. And what they recently announced was that, They've reassessed what happened in 2020 to 2021, the peak of uh, the COVID disaster. And what they've decided is that the size of the economic contraction was not quite as great as they thought it was. It was still a record slump. Um, And that the recovery was a little bit bigger than they thought. And the net effect of all of that is that in 2010, they now calculate that the economy was 1.8 percent bigger than they thought at the time. Now, the political significance of that is, as of this moment, that means that the recovery in the UK, the return to the economy being as big as it was before COVID, um, not only happened faster than we thought, but it doesn't now look so bad compared to other rich countries. We're now among the better-performing countries over that period, and that's a political point. But I'm afraid to say, you're going to despair at this, Steph, I'm afraid it doesn't change our fundamental view of the weakness of the British economy. There are a couple of reasons for that. One is because... If you look back to that very long period of low growth and low productivity, going all the way back to the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, the the, the economy being 1.8% bigger in 2021 is a sort of rounding error. You know, the average growth rate over that period, you know, is, I don't know, something like 0.2% more than we would have thought it would be. And it's neither here nor there. It, you know, it's still half, indeed, or less, the growth rate that we experienced before 2008. And and the more fundamental point is, it has nothing to do with people's living standards today, with lackluster growth today. The one thing that it explains, one of the things that people were slightly confused about, was why tax revenues were a little bit faster than the Office of Budget Responsibility and other forecasters thought they would be as we came out of COVID. But actually, if the economy was a bit bigger than we thought it was, then obviously tax revenues would have been and were a bit bigger. So it helps to explain the past. Unfortunately, it doesn't tell us very much about where we are now.
1: And as you say, for for people now, things don't feel Better do they? Of course, they don't.
0: And the other thing, just just very briefly on that, it's just in case people are interested, what the revision was about. The two big things they were about, which do not have a direct impact on people's lives. Well, they did in one respect. So when you calculate GDP, this this country, the Office of National Statistics here, other countries don't do this take account of what happens in the public sector. So one of the reasons why they were pretty despairing about GDP is they thought that hospitals couldn't provide any operations or any treatments other than COVID during the crisis. They then discovered subsequently that actually hospitals were doing a bit more treatment. And that that was one reason why they upped their calculation of the size of our national income, that hospitals were doing more work than they thought. And the other reason was um, companies continued to produce stuff during COVID at a rate that was faster than they expected. Even though companies couldn't sell this stuff, they were producing stuff that they then put in their warehouses and held as stock. And those stock levels were higher than they thought. But again, I'm afraid to say, even though that means the economy was a bit bigger at the time, it tells us nothing about the performance of those companies today.
1: Yeah, and what obviously everyone is talking about a lot at the moment is, Inflation and the fact that that you know is pretty much eating up any growth anyone has in their you know whether it be their wages or whether it be their business having a higher turnover, it it is the inflation which is entirely eating that. And lots of people are wondering why it is not coming down yet. This you know why have we got this sticky inflation situation, Robert?
0: I mean, obviously the biggest causes, which uh, we'll talk about at length in other programs, are things like the way that you know wages are going up the way that the service sector is putting up uh, prices to uh, reflect things like wages and the way that that is turning one-off price shocks from food and energy into continuing inflationary pressures. But there's another aspect of all of this which I've been absolutely gripped by because there was another sort of announcement, economic announcement, which didn't get the attention I thought it deserved, which is that the Bank of England and they put this out in a blog and also in a in a speech by their chief economist, now believes that um, when it comes to pricing by companies, prices are in a sense stickier when inputs, the prices of inputs are falling on the way down than they are. On the way up. So, you know, if the price of tomatoes sold by growers goes up, and if the price of gas and electricity goes up, then businesses will whack up almost immediately the prices that they charge to you and me for tomatoes and other things. Um, What the Bank of England has calculated is that there is, believe it or not, they say a two-quarter lag, a six-month lag when prices come down between us feeling it to the same extent on the way down and Mm. that is a concern because this is directly impacts the cost of living and our living standards so the question it poses are companies being greedy by not bringing prices down fast Mm.
1: enough yeah it's this idea of greedflation isn't it as you say companies um, continuing to profit when really they should be bringing the prices down and you've heard we've heard unions talk about that before as well, kicking off about it and saying that you know companies are, are guilty of this. Do, do you think they are then?
0: So I think it's a complex picture. I think the first thing we have to recognise is we do have, compared to most countries in the world, a pretty efficient supermarket sector, and it is pretty efficient. And historically, it's been pretty competitive. Now I've spoken to the bosses of supermarkets in the last couple of days about all of this and they make a number of points one of the things they say and there is some evidence of this is that actually they did not put up their prices as much as their input prices increased and that their margins over the past 6 months this is their profit margins were squeezed a bit and that if they're now rebuilding their profit margins by not cutting their prices as fast as prices are going down that should be understandable now I'm not sure most of us would regard that as um an acceptable excuse um because we are living through the worst cost of living um, crisis for decades. And I think we believe that in a sense, all businesses have a social license. And that means, a, you know, essentially not only a responsibility to their shareholders, but it's responsibility to all of us to do the right thing by us. And I think that actually there is an issue around whether or not um, businesses are behaving responsibly, responsibly, excuse me, if they're not bringing down prices fast enough. There is another point which is the competitive tension in the industry. And, um, you know, one of the things that you and I talk about quite a lot is the changing ownership of supermarkets, but businesses in general. And one of the things that's striking is that the ownership of British supermarkets has changed. Two of the biggest ones, Asda and Morrison's, and the point about Asda Morrisons, I mean, you'll know this, won't you? Because we used to sort of talk quite a lot about retail in the old days. You know, Asda and Morrisons were the big drivers of competition because they were the supermarkets that made a point of cutting prices. They're now owned by private equity. And within the industry, it is said that they are just not the competitive pressure that they were. They both got a lot of debt. They've got to finance that debt. And therefore, they are not bringing down prices and being as competitive on prices in the way that they were.
1: Well, Asda in particular has been called out on this, though, hasn't it? Because Asda, uh, as you know, is is, uh, owned by the Issa brothers, I've... Um, worked with Moshin a few times, Moshinissa, and he's really quite shy. I've, I've hosted a couple of charity events with him before, and he's he's a really lovely guy. But you don't think of you know you don't meet him and think, my God, this is a you know billionaire man who's started with one petrol forecourt and managed to turn it into you know hundreds of petrol stations and convenience stores, and then end up buying Asta. So
0: what's the do you mean the specific charge laid at his door?
1: Well, it's about the fact that they haven't been bringing down. Prices, so and and it's about the compl- complexities of their debt now because they've just merged, haven't they? Their petrol business, uh, their petrol forecourt business, with ASDA, and I know that they've uh, been called before a select committee. To, to talk about that in terms of what that means with their debt, because it means they've got a bigger debt now. And in your very point of people are saying, why aren't the, the prices, you know, your prices as competitive as they could be? Is it because of all the debt you need to pay off now and the, the refinancing you need to do? So,
0: I mean, the government has said it's, you know, well, it's actually asked competition authorities to look at the structure of the industry. And there's a bit of additional work going on by the Competition Markets Commission to look at the prices of of, of a limited number of, of products. For me, there is a bigger question. If you look at what, for example, the European Central Bank has said about European retailers, if you look at what the IMF has been saying about retailers Everywhere. If you look at what you know what, what Central Bank in America has said about US retailers, all of them have said that companies have been using inflation as a cover to put up their profits. Question for me is: do we really believe that we have companies in the UK that behave in a more, more responsible way? We need wealth-creating companies, right? Profits matter. But equally as I say, there is this sort of social license for businesses, and it seems to me there is a responsibility on businesses to help their customers through difficult times.
1: Mm. Yeah, The um, the British business managers of the country are going to be raging with you because you were slagging them off last week as well, saying they weren't very good at management, and now this week.
0: <laughs> uh, obviously, <laughs> obviously, obviously, all my friends in the industry are brilliant, brilliant managers.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Can I just – just a fact I wanted to add to that, um, just on this, because Unite, the union, looked at the profit margins of the – FTSE 350, so your top 350 companies that are listed. And they found that the profit margins were around 5% at the start of 2019 um, and over 10% at the start of 2022. Now, I don't know what the list is and where we're at now, but it does suggest that companies are putting prices up by more than their increased costs, as you say.
0: I think we'll want to come back to all of this. Within the 350, um, obviously, there are lots and lots and lots of different businesses. And it's it's unquestionably the case that profit margins within the energy industries have gone through the roof. I think, you know, and, and, you know, there is a windfall tax and there are issues about whether the windfall tax should be higher. I think the issue is actually whether there are, whether, for example, in particular, since it has such a direct impact on all of us, the profit margins of supermarkets are where we would expect them to be, you know, to tide us through these this difficult period. But tons of stuff to talk about in, you know, the continuing story of what's happening in British business, British economy, our living standards. Um, so fortunately, there may well be another edition of
1: this podcast next week. Oh, do you think we'll make it to a hat trick?
0: <laughs> I, so. I take nothing right. for granted. I take nothing. My, my main motto in life is take nothing for granted.
1: Yeah, I like it. Okie dokie. Uh, well, thank you so much uh, for everyone for listening. We will see you next week. We will. All the best. Bye bye.